Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. So how do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. One day in 1957, a little boy at an elementary school in New York City came home and told his mother that another little boy at his school had been killed at school that day by being run over by a beer truck. What? How can that be a thing? His mother (laughs) said. You can't get run over by a beer truck during school. Uh Uh-huh. It was horrified obviously and very confused and so she went to the school to try to figure out what had happened now she was a single mother trying to support her two children and she had never actually visited the school where her children went to school which is hard to comprehend in today's helicopter parent days but apparently was fairly standard all the kids just went off to school (laughs) together okay When she got to the school, she realized immediately why this little boy had been killed by a truck at school. Because the children were playing in the street. There was no playground. And as she walked into the school, she realized the building was horrifying. There was one bathroom for over 100 children. And she also knew immediately why the school was this way. This school in New York, 1957 was a segregated African-American school. Wait, wait, but this is post-Brown versus Board of Education. Right, and it's New York City. And it's New York, yeah. So what's the deal? How is that possible? Yeah, what's going on? And that idea of, wait a minute, this isn't how that story goes, is sort of the perfect encapsulation of the life of that mother. Her name was Mae Mallory, and she became one of the most prominent radical civil rights activists of the time. Mm. This is sort of her very first bursting onto the scene publicly because she takes on this school segregation. Now, it's not legal segregation, Mm. but de facto, it was every bit as segregated as it was in the South. So as her children get older, Mae Mallory's daughter decides that she really wants to be a nutritionist. She's an extremely bright girl, and if she wants to pursue this career, she has to go to college. But there are no college preparatory classes. There is no pathway for a child in this school to go to college. Mae Mallory is not going to stand for this anymore. So she decides, fine, if the program that my daughter needs is not at this school, I'm going to enroll her at the white school that has all of the programs that she needs. She enrolls her daughter, whose name is Patricia, in this school and is told, you can't do that. You are not allowed to enroll your daughter out of the district. So she files a lawsuit and says, if you are not providing the programs that my daughter needs at her school, 
she has to be allowed to enroll outside of the district. But the lawsuit stalls in the courts. I think the goal was to just slow it down enough that these women would give up. So nine women decide to arrange a boycott of the school system. Hmm. This school boycott rolls on for four months. It completely monopolizes the front page of the newspapers. Wow. Everyone is paying attention and the school system is really, really embarrassed. It eventually did work. Her daughter did get to go to the other school and she is credited with desegregating the New York City school system. But the main thing that she is credited with accomplishing is pulling off the curtain of the fact that this was segregation by her publicizing of the fact that it was every bit as bad even if it wasn't legally enforced. Hmm. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. So to learn more about Mae Mallory, I talked to Dr. Ashley Farmer. Dr. Farmer is a historian of black women's history and radical politics, and she's a professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her book called Remaking Black Power is about women during this era of civil rights and the ways they've been ignored or forgotten. May Mallory was born, we think, around 1927 in Macon, Georgia, kind of the outskirts of Georgia. And she's one of these folks that is a very typical kind of African-American um, northern migration story. When she was in Macon, she t- says as though she had kind of a rebellious personality because she was kind of nurtured and loved by a black community that did not treat her or make her feel as though she was less than anybody else. Um, and this kind of caused a bunch of moments of kind of lashing out at other kids. She tells a story about how, I guess, she was roller skating and another kid, white kid pushed her and she pushed him back and it was a whole thing. Basically, she wasn't really good as a kid, at least, at kind of fitting into the kind of social mores of race and kind of deference. So she says this is the reason that her mom um, moved her um, and her brother to the north. I think it's probably a combination of reasons, you know, as most people did in the kind of 1910s, 1920s, the North kind of offered, you know, this refuge, particularly for black women. You might be able to get out of domestic service, work a different job, live a little different life. So they go to, they live both in Brooklyn and in Harlem, which are kind of these, you know, kind of up and coming African-American communities in the 30s and 40s. But also what's really interesting for Mae Mallory is this is really quite a bustling time politically, particularly in Harlem. In the 1920s, before the start of the Great Depression, you had something called Marcus Garvey and his Universal Negro Improvement Association, which was the largest black nationalist movement and kind of black movement ever in history. And she comes at a little bit later point in the 30s and 40s, but all of that is still kind of, the remnants of that are still there, coupled with this really vibrant political scene around the Depression and World War II that really sees black women working on behalf of the working class, you know, doing tenants' rights struggles and talking about what it means to be a domestic worker and talking about what it means to be a factory worker. So she's fairly involved in the grassroots political scene. She's involved in trying to improve the lives of African-Americans in New York. She is completely off the radar. She's doing on-the-ground, local-level work. And then in 1961... She became basically a federal fugitive and one of the most wanted women in America. (laughs) 
Wow, a federal fugitive. <laughs> she is wanted for kidnapping an elderly white couple and holding them at gunpoint. <laughs> what? This never happened. <laughs> but the story is interesting. So between 57 and 61, she's kind of milling about organizing kind of at the grassroots level for equal access to resources and opportunities. In the process of this time, she meets a activist from Monroe, North Carolina named Robert F. Williams. Robert F. Williams is this army veteran who's returned home, kind of very militant. He joined the NAACP and led the, Mon- the Union County chapter of the Monroe NAACP. He was terrorized violently, so he started to agree to arm himself. And he actually formed an NRA chapter of black people in Monroe, North Carolina. The NRA gave them a charter. And it was when he started to publicly advocate for that as president of the NAACP. The NAACP is up in arms because they they don't want to be associated with this. And they expel him. And so he needs a different kind of set of uh, relationships and networks in order to keep his organizing afloat. So this is... If listeners are familiar, this is the point where the Freedom Riders are attempting to test the integration of the transportation system of the U.S. They are black and white activists traveling through the South to make sure that these buses that are supposed to be integrated are actually integrated. Mm -hmm. It was an extremely dangerous project. Yeah. In many of the cities where the Freedom Riders arrive, they are met with angry mobs, KKK police who are siding with the KKK or turning a blind eye. Mm -hmm. And many of the Freedom Riders are severely beaten. Some have lifelong injuries. Some die. Um, So this all comes ahead in August of 1961 when the Freedom Riders want to come to Monroe. Robert F. Williams is like, if you come to Monroe, they're going to attack you. You're not going to be able to protest nonviolently. And he's like, this is silly, but I, if you want to come, I will support you. But he knew probably that there were going to be altercations, so he asked for his New York group to come down and help support the young activists, but also kind of document what's happening because he felt like it could shine a light on some of the racial atrocities that were taking place. Mallory is initially very hesitant to go. She doesn't believe in nonviolent protest, and she doesn't really believe in what's happening, but she agrees to support him. The Freedom Riders come in August. At the end of the week of picketing, a kind of fight ensues. They're picketing around the Union County Church. About 2,000, so they say, white people from various parts of North Carolina come in and attack them. And Robert F. Williams and his supporters kind of pull the Freedom Riders out just in time before, you know, the mob gets a hold of them. They have arranged to get them out as fast as possible to this fortified section of Monroe where they've literally like barricades and stuff. So they get them into this fortified section of the city to keep them safe. So because Williams is kind of the local black leader, everybody kind of gathers at his house after this initial attack. And Mallory is there. There's some reports that she's egging on the crowd. (laughs) There's other reports that say that she had nothing to do with it. But either way, she is just kind of in the mix. And while this is happening, an older couple named Bruce and Mabel Stiegel, who are known to be associated with the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists, come down into the neighborhood. They're basically trying to spy and see what what's going to happen. And the mob around there wants to attack them. So Mallory and Wabita Williams take the Stiegels into the house to save them from being attacked. They sit there, they talk to them, they wait till the crowd disperses. The Steagles go home. (laughs) They leave the house. They go straight to the police station and announce that they have been kidnapped and held at gunpoint by Mae Mallory and Robert F. Williams. 
they basically know that the lynch mob is coming for them. They leave in the middle of the night, Mallory, Robert F. Williams, his wife, Mabel, and their two sons, and one of the other folks that comes from New York, they drive to New York because they think they'll be safer there. But now they've crossed state lines. So Robert F. Williams and his family actually leave to go to Cuba because they, they know that he, if he's arrested, if they don't kill him, he, he will spend his life in jail. So that leaves Mallory, who ends up going to Cleveland and hiding out for about six weeks before she's captured. There really are wanted posters of her pasted everywhere. So it's really interesting because we think about, if we think probably about a black woman on a wanted poster, we probably think about somebody like an Angela Davis. But really, a good 10 years before that even happened, if you went to the post office, you went to the airport, it was her FBI photo that was really up and everywhere. She's eventually captured and spends about four to five years in jail, both in Ohio, where she's captured, where she fights extradition back to North Carolina, and then in North Carolina. And during that time, she really becomes really one of the first political prisoners of that era. So before, like I said, a free Huey newton Lally, before a free Angela Davis, there was a group of people ranging from MLK to, you know, more radical folks demanding her freedom and, and working on her behalf. So really between kind of 1957 and 1961, she really became a household name in both good and bad ways and really kind of changed the calculus of kind of politics and black organizing in that way. Wow. Because she, she just came down for the weekend, right, to help the mm-hmm. Freedom Riders. And now she's in jail in Cleveland. In Cleveland. <laughs> so wow. she fights extradition for four years and finally loses and is extradited to North Carolina, put on trial and is found guilty. No. She's sentenced to 20 years in prison. (gasps) That is so wrong. Eventually, that verdict is overturned by the North Carolina Supreme Court uh, because no black people were allowed on the jury. So she was sentenced by an all-white jury, and the North Carolina Supreme Court found that that is illegal and overturned the verdict. So she is eventually released. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And that's one of the reasons why I love Girls Can Crate so much. They really do make it possible for girls to imagine an entirely new way of being. They're changing the lens of what it looks like to be a girl and a woman in this world. And I love that. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, girlscancrate.com, and use the code HERNAME, all one word, you can get 20% off your first box on any order. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From like an historical standpoint, you know, it really teaches us to stop trying to fit everybody into a box. I mean, she, she doesn't fit into any box except maybe just what some historians would call long distance runners or activists that kind of, you know, engage in all these different kind of periods. But she 
she defies temporal boundaries, she defies organizational boundaries, she divides gender mores, like all of that is not part of it. So she offers, an, I think, a really interesting opportunity to kind of examine black women on their own terms, but also to think about where else we should be looking and who else we might find. We tend to simplify this narrative of what the civil rights movement was to, it was all Martin Luther King Jr. and nonviolent resistance. Or right. sometimes it was that and Malcolm X and it fixed everything. Yeah, goodness won in the end. <laughs> and she complicates that. She She is... All of it, right? She is working with the black nationalists and she is working with the communists and she is working with the PTA and she is working with Malcolm X and she is working with the Freedom Riders. She's just solving problems with very little interest in the higher ideological slot that those problems fit into. Hmm. Which is also, I think, why she is no longer in our narrative. She doesn't fit. She doesn't fit any of the categories that we've made for civil rights activists. She doesn't agree with Martin Luther King, but she doesn't agree with Malcolm X. She doesn't agree with the Black Panther movement on everything, but she doesn't agree with the NAACP on everything. She is intensely practical. She is extremely dedicated and fierce and unwilling to bend when she believes that what she's doing is right. So... Let's think back to the biggest moment when she bursts onto the scene as the Harlem Nine. She is the hero of school integration. She has no interest in integration. She could not care less. She wow. said repeatedly, I don't care about my daughter sitting next to white kids. Give me the same classes in the black school. I just want her to have the classes she needs to go to college. Mm. And so she's bucking the same narrative that she's sort of lauded for. Yeah, interesting. She's much more of a black nationalist or a separatist saying, look, we're, we're never going to be able to get a fair shake in a country started by white people. We have to start over. So she's attached to everybody, but she's not beholden to anybody. She's not loyal to any specific label. Hmm that I'm not interested in harmony. I'm interested in freedom. She is very committed to one specific ideological picture. It's just not one that we ever talk about in relation to the civil rights movement. She is framing this on a global level in ways that we almost never talk about. We talk about the civil rights struggle in America as black people in America fighting to get rights in America. Mm -hmm. And she's very clear about if you only fight for rights for black people in America, you are throwing everyone else in the world under the bus. If you're not going to address the problems that white colonialism causes for people of color everywhere, then you're not doing anything. And so she refuses to fit into any of these arguments because they're not fixing what she sees as the fundamental problem. Mm. 
it's kind of a different refrain that keeps happening over time. You know, first, in, you know, the, the school segregation had nothing to do with wanting to sit next to white folks. Then she's not talking about, you know, integration but full freedom. You know, and she sees folks like an MLK. She sees folks like Renee Philip Randolph as basically kind of becoming what she would call the, I mean, her word is kind of like the pets of American imperialism and capitalism. You know, where you get a little bit of the spoils of this in exchange for that, you kind of, you try to indoctrinate others. Especially in her prison letters, she writes prolifically about how this is all just kind of a dog and pony show. And, and it's having disastrous effects for the rest of black people that can't get these spoils. Her point too is also it's having really disastrous effects for the folks affected by American imperialism, which are other kind of black and brown folks. When you champion this at home and abroad, then you know other it's not just your other fellow black people that are being damaged by this. It really is everybody. She did not think that we could kind of integrate ourselves or kind of gradually get towards equality. She thought the whole thing should just kind of have to be inverted and started from scratch again. From a activist standpoint, she's a really interesting model in how to commit to a set of politics or political ethos and practice that over the course of, I mean, the better part of five or six decades and really engage in grassroots struggles that can have kind of a major national, international impact. From 65 to 70, she's just working with grassroots groups like on welfare. And then she moves to Tanzania for a while and works there in the 70s. And then she comes back and is still working at like Medgar Ever College and doing like a radio show. So it's just kind of this, I have this sustained commitment to being anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-imperialist, talking about the plight of the working class black person and mobilizing around those issues. We start to actually see these separatist movements starting new countries, starting Ghana and Tanzania. Yeah. And saying this is going to be a new start completely from the ground up. This is what she has been waiting for. This is what she has been looking for Uh her whole life. She's one of the organizers of the Sixth Pan-African Congress in the 70s, which really start to say, look, we've got to start working together. As a continent, we have to start as African-Americans thinking about Africa as part of us instead of an other. So I think that she found things like the Six Pan African Congress, where everybody's getting together and kind of figuring out the future of black people to be the kind of space that she had kind of always been searching for in a lot of ways. And I find that really compelling and interesting. And I think, you know, again, we have this conversation sometimes of the like how do you fix stuff and work local think globally act locally you know yeah she is the perfect example of that she is always looking outward always pointing out this isn't helping people in haiti you're not talking about the problems that that the u.s is also visiting on puerto rico but also working just on the ground on what she can do Mm -hmm. right in front of her She gets a radio show. When she comes back from Tanzania, late 70s, early 80s, she has a radio show on the Medgar Evers public radio station. Wow. In New York, she has a radio show called Coping With Life. Oh. And it's just a show about, again, solving black people's problems. And it was billed as kind of just like talking about black people's problems and working class black, you know, so the same kind of idea of like, how do we get our lives together kind of thing. From what I can tell, those tapes have been lost. Um, so I, I find references to it in her own writing and in like newspaper articles, like on This Week in Coping Your Life. It seems like her biography 
could serve as a kind of microcosm for all that was going on in America through the whole of the second half of the 20th century. Like, her life taps into all the different strands of that story that we tell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think cool. And it breaks it up in just the right ways, too, to, yeah. to force us to confront, wait, racism in the North, wait, segregation in New York City, mm-hmm. wait, Tanzania. Interesting. The fact that she's a woman, the fact that she's a working class woman, the fact that she's a working class woman that was divorced and a radical, and then the fact that the locales in which she operated. And she was never really part of a formal organization. She's kind of extra organizational in that way, never an NAACP, never an Urban League thing. She worked with a lot of little grassroots organizations, but never in that same kind of way as, you know, a Rosa Parks or a Daisy Bates. She has this huge impact on people's lives and on the civil rights movement. And yet, If it weren't for the kidnapping fiasco, we probably wouldn't know her name. Mm. She died in 2007. Oh, wow. And as Dr. Farmer points out, it's only now that scholars are starting to rediscover her and retell this narrative in a different way, too. And so even after her death, her life follows that trajectory of reclaiming these stories and maybe we're just now starting to get enough distance distance yeah. from them to say wow, look at the complicated yeah. stuff happening during the civil rights movement. Right. Look at the ways that we have co-opted a lot of these stories in ways that are untruthful and unhelpful for all of us, you know, to try to understand what was really going on. Yeah, This was a messy complicated wildly diverse movement that that still hasn't come to any resolution of what worked and who was right. Yeah. That we have no way of saying this argument was the correct one. That technique worked more effectively. Right. I mean, that those questions have been tested in so many different countries in so many different time periods and All countries which have institutionalized oppression have tried ways out. We'll probably, globally, we'll probably never say, oh, here's the way out of oppression. Here's the, here's the human solution. My people are in pain. White kills black and black hates white and the cycle repeats. Huge thanks to our guests, Dr. Ashley Farmer, and to our patrons, Leanne Christiansen and Christina Summers, for making this episode possible. You can become a sponsor at our Patreon page and help us create more women's history. There you can find great prizes like our women's history cross-stitch patterns and our brand new What's-Her-Name trading cards that help you celebrate and show off all the women that you've learned about on the podcast. Just visit our website at whatshernamepodcast.com and click donate. If you'd like to learn more about Mae Mallory, her life and activism, or about Dr. Farmer's book and groundbreaking work, visit our website for pictures, links, and more. Music for this episode was provided by Daniel Henderson and his big band, Jeff Kuno, and by Cynthia Mang and Kim Ona, whose incredible song cycle, A Life in Color, you can find on Bandcamp at the link in our website. Enormous thanks, as always, to the generous musicians who give our episodes life. Our theme music was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. 
What's Your Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson. This episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. So be strong and hold on. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there.